You know, I think we probably all know that when, um, when life is going well, it's easy to speak about abundance. When we're happy, when we're in love, when we're employed well, when we're healthy, things progress with a kind of ease. But those days when everything is falling apart, those days when the woes of the world are too much with us, those days it can be really challenging to look around and see anything but mud puddles. And indeed, those are the very days, the very times that abundance is most needed. A sense of plenitude is not about everything going right. That kind of fullness, that abundance, has to do with exactly what Mike was talking about. It has to do with noticing and appreciating what is already there. Consider this scenario. Life's led you into a puddle. Are you still staring at your mud-covered feet? Or are you ready to look up and notice that the wide open sky never went away? The point of living abundantly isn't that your feet aren't wet or mud-covered. It isn't that there aren't real dilemmas you face, real struggles, or that the world would be just fine if everyone just noticed that wide open sky. Embodying abundance has to do with looking around to find that sky, to see what is there of beauty, and to really notice it, to really see it. And that holds the potential to be life-altering, to soothe the soul and provide balm for the spirit. The world will not be perfect because of it, but it will be better. This way of seeing has to do with recognizing what goodness is already there and available to us. Those mud puddle moments are the exact times when we need to reach deeper. Deeper than we thought we could. Deeper into our own spiritual storehouses for hope and love and healing. Writer Heidi Barr points to this deep-seated and timeless spiritual wisdom when she asks this question. What if instead of seeing poverty, despair, pain, and cruelty in the world, we saw opportunities for growth, seeds of hope, room for healing, and the sharing of compassion? What if we could truly embody abundance in every thought? Now, I want to tell you that when I first read that quote, I was both nodding yes and shaking my head no at the same time. 
You know, honestly, I'm not sure that I could face myself or God or any of you if I didn't acknowledge and confront the overabundance in the world of suffering and privilege and violence and greed and basic injustice. Any consideration of living a spiritually abundant life can't ignore any of those. Just can't turn from those. Yet at the same time, Barr is naming a truth, a spiritual truth. What we bring to and see in a situation matters immensely. Our fundamental perspective on the universe, on the fabric of life, impacts our ability to embody abundance, to share it, and to multiply it. As Unitarian Universalist minister Angela Harara says, abundance is not about having what you want, but about noticing what you have and multiplying it through sharing it, multiplying it through your manner of being in this world. Consider for a moment this wisdom story. It is a story about two men who had been injured in combat, in war. Both of these men were quite ill, and they had to remain quiet and calm. They shared a small room in a hospital ward. The room had one window and one door. One man's bed was positioned near the window, and he was allowed to sit up for an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon by that window. The other man had to spend all of his time lying flat on his back. They had no television and no radio, so they spent a lot of their time talking to each other. They spent hours and hours and hours talking with each other, sharing their stories with each other. And every morning and every afternoon, the man who was sitting by the window would recount the wonders, the glorious wonders that greeted him beyond that glass. He described a beautiful park with a blue lake with ducks and swans gliding along. He described children who threw bread to the birds and sailed their mottled yachts. He described the young lovers who walked arm in arm. Beds of dahlias and roses and marigolds bloomed in one corner of the park. There was a tennis court and there were often lively tennis matches happening. The man lying flat on his back relished these stories, relished these times when he could hear of these great adventures, these beautiful happenings right outside. But one day, he started to feel resentful. Why should the other man get to see these incredible sights. Why should he have the bed 
by the window. Resentment grew and grew. You know how that, that is, right? Resentment, it festers. And then one night, the man whose bed was by the window awoke, and he was coughing violently. He was actually choking, and he tried unsuccessfully to get his call button to call for the nurse, but he couldn't. The other man didn't move. He kept his eyes closed, pretending he was asleep. Eventually, there was silence. The coughing had stopped. In the morning, the nurse came in and discovered the man by the window was dead. Now, the other man allowed some respectable time to pass before he asked if he could be moved to the bed by the window. And after he was moved and the nurses left the room, he hoisted himself up on one elbow, and it, it took a lot of effort for him to do this, and it was really painful for him to do it, but he wanted just one look with his own eyes, just one look at that glorious view. And he peered out the window, and what he saw before him was a blank wall. A blank wall. Who among us has not experienced envy of what someone else has? Who hasn't ruined their own happiness from time to time by focusing on what they lack rather than what brings them joy? Despite looking out and seeing a blank wall, one man was able to see beyond that wall, to see a vision of hope and life and beauty. It isn't that he didn't see that wall. He just didn't let that wall contain him, define all of life for him. He allowed the world to come alive in his imagination and to share it and multiply it. How incredible to see through such eyes, to embrace the wide open sky. The other man, of course, by focusing on what he didn't have, lost what brought him joy. He lost the stories the other man told him. He lost the companionship. The man who first had his bed by the window lost his life but so did the other man. How different that story might have turned out had the man lying flat on his back looked for the abundance that already existed in his life. The Quaker educator Parker Palmer encourages people to assume that at its core the universe is a place 
of tremendous possibility. How many of you know Parker Palmer? I like to lift him up from time to time. He writes these words. The quality of our active lives depends heavily on whether we assume a world of scarcity or a world of abundance. Do we inhabit a universe where the basic things that people need from food and shelter to a sense of competence and of being loved are ample in nature? Or is this a universe where such goods are in short supply, available only to those who have the power to beat everyone else to the store? The nature of our action, he says, will be heavily conditioned by the way we answer those bedrock questions. In a universe of scarcity, only people who know the arts of competing even of making war, will be able to survive. But in a universe of abundance, in a universe of abundance, acts of generosity and community become not only possible, but fruitful as well. When I was growing up, my parents worried a lot about money. I knew that. They tried not to show it much to my sister and me. But money was always tight. My parents were skilled at making things stretch, all sorts of things. They knew how to recycle whatever they could make whatever they could. They had a large garden. My mother did extensive canning and freezing every year, not because it was trendy, but because it saved money. She made the real milk last by mixing it with powdered milk, much to my chagrin. When I complained, sorely complained, that I didn't like it, she never told me that she did it to save money. I figured that out much later. She sewed most of my clothes until I rebelled. To me, one of the strangest things that she did was salvage pantyhose by sewing two good legs together. That was another one that I didn't figure out until much later when I knew the pantyhose were a commodity, kind of pricey. There were no family vacations when I was growing up. Going out to eat was a once or twice a year occasion at most, and it was not anywhere fancy. Oddly enough, the only restaurant I seem to remember going to was Howard Johnson's. I loved the french fries. So different from what my mother made at home in the deep fryer. You know, these were skinny fries. In the summer, of course, we did get to go to Dairy Queen once in a while and go play miniature golf from time to time. 
The thing is that what I lacked in financial resources as a child, I was paid back with in extensive hours playing board games, playing Scrabble, playing make-believe with my sister, reading books, writing, playing with paper dolls, studying, being outside, mostly barefoot. Abundance in my family never had to do with money. My parents did not live as though they were missing out on anything. Abundance had to do with loving life, being a good person, and loving each other. Deep in the fiber of my parents' beings, they had a belief that life is good. That belief was not grounded on them having had easy lives. The bedrock of their belief was a deep-seated faith in a bountiful universe, in a God, sometimes mysterious, but always, always loving. My parents taught me to see the glass as half full. Recently, I heard a story that has taken my understanding of the half full glass to a whole new level. It's a story that I like to think that reflects something my parents might have said too. It's a true story told by Chester Bennington. He was interviewed as part of a uh, something called Project Human, um, a documentary film that captures stories of the human condition. You can go on YouTube and find uh, clips of these stories or long, um, the long segments of this film. And this is the piece that Bennington shared. The magic moment I had with my grandfather was right after my grandmother died. And I went to go see him and I, I knew he was hurting. But I wasn't sure what kind of state he would be in. She was his partner 65 years as well as his driver. I went to see him and I said, Grandpa, how are you doing? And he said, did you know that for $4, I can get a shuttle anywhere in the city? 
And I said, wow, that's great, Grandpa. And he said, well, I went to the grocery store and I went to the woman behind the counter and said, I have this list of things. Could you help me find them? My wife has recently changed her residence to heaven. And I said, Grandpa, man, you always helped me to see the glass as half full. And he leaned back and he looked me in the eyes and he said, it's a beautiful glass. It's a beautiful glass. The beautiful glass is our birthright. This is not a Pollyanna-ish optimism that ignores life's realities. It is a fierce and heart-opening affirmation of the inherent capacity and capability for beauty and goodness and compassion and fairness. This insists on seeking and finding the best in our lives and in the lives of those around us in the natural world, at work or at home, whether we are alone or in a crowd with friends or strangers, in the times of quiet and the times when life is coming at us faster than we ever imagined it could. The French-Swiss poet Jean Petit Seine wrote, it's not what we have that constitutes our abundance, but what we appreciate. May we each learn to appreciate. May we learn to notice what already exists. May we learn to see not only the glass half full, but the beautiful glass. May we embody abundance and multiply it wherever we go. May it be so. Amen. Blessed be.